So, uh, Richard couldn't be here this week, unfortunately, so instead I have used my uh, background in computers and robotics to make a robot Richard, and I can't see what could possibly go wrong with this. Let me just cinch a wire here, do this last little bit of... There we go, and he's on. Hello, Chris. Hello, Richard. How are you feeling? Feelings are for humans. That's absolutely correct. But will you be able to simulate them to review the movies on this week's Digital Noise? I can create the look and feel of anger and hatred at Adam Sandler movies. That's perfect. Wow, this worked even better than I thought it was going to. So you review completely from a basis of logic and reason, right? Only from facts. Only from truth. So you now realize, of course, that the Star Wars prequels are just terrible pieces of shit, right? You are incorrect again. What? All Star Wars films are perfect. Damn it. Time to scrap this and go back to the beginnings. I'm going to need a beer for this. I also am a beer dispenser. You know what? Maybe we'll keep him around. Beep boop. It's funny, uh, we actually used to record another show called Remote Viewing that we had to change the name to Digital Noise when we went to a new website. Hang on, who's we? Uh, Brian and I. Uh. <laughs> oh, that guy. That guy. Hey, up, <laughs> hey, up Brian. <laughs> and uh, I kept all those episodes, so I actually have them on a hard drive, but I was scared to go back and count them all up and then add them to this number because then I would actually know how much time I've spent doing this time you could have spent on something worthwhile like porn. Yeah, well, that got mixed in. (laughs) (laughs) We've rarely reviewed porn. Yeah, there's very few instances. There's a few things that have come close to porn, and this week there's one title that certainly touches on it at once. Oh, yes. Talking of touching. (laughs) Yeah. There we go. It's a little softcore, but uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about this week, so let's just get into the house cleaning here. First off, thank you so much for listening to Digital Noise, the best movie and television home release review show on the internet, or anywhere in the galaxy because they probably don't have any intelligent life anywhere else in the galaxy so it's a narrow well, field well they do but they, don't, they may not have films that's true yeah they and may just inject narrative straight into your penis ooh that sounds like the best porn that, ever that sounds very uncomfortable actually I don't really require story for my porn but you know <laughs> you just cut right to the chase uh, one of our sponsors is audible.com where you can get just a, hundreds of thousands I believe of podcasts and audiobooks and magazines and all sorts of things uh, one of the things I've been recommending lately for people to read is Wool by Hugh Howey and it's a wonderful post-apocalyptic tale that's not like any other post-apocalyptic tale you've read. It's a b- book one in the Silo Saga. And you can, in fact, pick the, the audio version of that up on Audible and give it a try. And, in fact, if you sign up now through our links, 
you not only could download that for free, which is nice. Your first thing is is that you uh, go through when you sign up for Audible is free, but we get a nice little kickback. Right. So that's cool. And then after that, you can keep listening to all the other amazing stuff they have on there. Like uh, one of the ones I keep meaning to download and listen to is Carrie Elwes wrote a book about the making of the Princess Bride and then narrates it. And that's <laughs> on there. And apparently, according to everyone involved with that movie, it was like the most fun time they ever had in their entire lives. Like that set was one giant party. Apparently, like everybody playing giant, elaborate, practical jokes on each other and sudden giant. Or in the case of Andre the Giant, regular sized practical jokes. Regular sized practical jokes, exactly. Uh, So lots of good stuff on there to listen to. Uh, Please check that out. Also, of course, you'll see on our site, we've got the Amazon. uh, Well, we've got the picture of everything we're viewing and then the links that go to Amazon pages. If you click on those links and buy that product or in fact, buy any other product starting from that links starting from those links we get a kickback from that as well which is really nice and you guys do that a lot i mean shit you need a washing machine or whatever you're buying a wrench you're buying a cat collar you're buying a new speaker whatever it is start from up kitty one litter. Of our links kitty litter we they actually sell- get our kitty litter delivered to our house because it's much easier do you yeah do you do it through our amazon links uh yes <laughs> hmm probably well robot richard really is realistic <laughs> <laughs> uh Please use those links for whatever it is, and it helps more than I can say. As does being a subscriber. As does being a subscriber. We've got several, four different tiers of being a subscriber, each with their own benefits. And starting, I want to say, next week, commentaries are now going up in the subscriber forums on a regular basis. They've already recorded two. And more to come. I'm super excited. One of these days, we're going to get you, me, and your lovely wife on The Lost Boys. Yes. That is the plan. <laughs> to get also, that done. Also, there, there's a whole bunch of, of things that we have lined up. We're like, we only need to do that title, and that title, and that title, and that title, and that title. Oh, there's just so many. And, you know, honestly, we can't, we're almost out of John Carpenter movies to do, so what do we, we do? had to look past. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> I know. We were like, when we did it, we were like sitting around, what movie you want to do? I don't know. Oh, wait, here's a John Carpenter movie we haven't done yet. Let's do that. And part of that was just we just wanted to watch the John Carpenter movies again. <laughs> this this site, a feeble excuse to just watch John Carpenter movies. Yeah, you know, I like John Carpenter movies up until In the Mouth of Madness. And after that, not so much. Yeah. 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 You can't really blame him for Ghost of Mars. Oh, why not? Um, he cast Marilyn Manson in it. I think so. Wasn't the ghost Marilyn Manson? No, I think it just looked like Marilyn Manson. Uh, well, he cast the ghost of Marilyn Manson in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he like uh, there's actually a, a whole long fascinating story about what went wrong with that, and it was basically that they pretty much went, yeah, you know that cast you want? No, you can't have any of them. But that's far from the only problem with that movie. <laughs> well, that was that was the first of many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what happened. Carpenter uh, switch flipped and something. Just it's like he just ran out of stuff or passion for it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, we're not reviewing any John Carpenter movies this week. We review one or two movies that maybe could have been John Carpenter. Carpenteresque. Carpenteresque films. And let's jump right into the reviews with a movie that uh, launched the career of Neil Marshall, who went on to do The Descent. But honestly, I still think this is his best film. It is Dog Soldiers. This is a re-release from Scream Factory. And it's funny, when I first saw this movie, I'd really, I mean, it'd been so long since I'd seen a good werewolf film. I mean, I'd like, I think I had Ginger Snaps like two years before, which was really good, but not one of those get your blood pumping ones. 
that I just kind of not didn't give a shit about werewolves anymore. And after I saw this, for like a month afterward, I was irritating the shit out of everybody I worked with at the bar, going like, wouldn't it be cool if werewolves attacked? What would we do? We'd take that table and put it up against the wall. They're like, Chris, shut the fuck up about werewolves. Let's be honest, the werewolves are nothing to do with you irritating the shit out of people you worked with. But well, it didn't It didn't. Give help. you a good cover story. It didn't help. No. <laughs> it's like going to girls, it's like, when the werewolves come, stick with me. <laughs> they're like yeah because you look tasty and we can run away mm, that's uh, true that's it. just just kick me to the floor and, uh this movie like i said first neil marshall film i believe it was his first film wasn't it, it? was uh they, they say it's a horror comedy there's certainly comedic aspects it's more of a straightforward action horror yeah. film I, i've never got the description of a, it as a horror comedy i think a lot of that comes from the character of sean pertwee as the kind of droll uh, sergeant uh, in charge of this uh, this unit of British squaddies who were sent to the Scottish Highlands as part of a training exercise, um, and that's basically basically just be there to be to bounce off a bunch of British special forces who've been sent up there to you know, really train using them as as you know, bait effectively. Right. When they suddenly discover that the most of the special forces guys have been butchered horribly yeah. <laughs> by something unseen just in the woods to pieces. Never got a shot thing. off. Uh, and it turns into really like a, a you know a survival horror action horror thing with these werewolves that have them boarded up in this house, uh, and they meet this local woman who's a zoologist who is there trying to study these things and believing that they were in fact werewolves. Great move. Uh, and then the, it's not long for like sort of the leadership of the squad switches to Private Cooper, who we see in the beginning originally had tried out for this other force that was led by Liam Cunningham, but a, a young Liam Cunningham. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> not the Game of Thrones Liam Cunningham, uh, who basically tried wanted this guy after acing the course, like the the test, wouldn't shoot a dog. And he's like, no, I'm not going to shoot a fucking dog. What are you, crazy? And then he shot the dog in front of him. He's like, okay, you can't. if you can't shoot a dog, then you're out of here. And I was like, well, Brian's never going to watch this movie. Nope. <laughs> but, um, which is a shame because it's amazing. But that guy's the one guy to survive from this crew. And he's been clawed and yes. bit. And we know what that means. <laughs> and uh, Sean Pertwee's character, God, he looks just like his dad. It's so funny. He, he does look like a young version you of his dad. You put a curly wig on him, it's like, whoa, creepy. He's Doctor Who. I, I, I still want to do a film with Sean Pertwee and Sean Bean and see which one dies first. <laughs> right? Uh, Sean Pertwee's put somewhat out of action, and Kevin McKidd, uh, who we know from Rome and Train Spotting, from Train Spotting, uh, takes over as the guy who's like, you know, he's he's kind of a badass. And this is so much fun. Yeah. Watching these guys, these werewolves repeatedly launch attacks on this house, and they're trying to come up with whatever they can think of to make it till dawn to get out of there. And it's gory as hell, and it's just nonstop action, and all the performances are really good, yeah. even, which is something you did, don't expect. The, the only weak spot of this is that one character in the third act... Um, has a horribly overwritten monologue. Yes. That it, you'd kind of sit there and just go, yeah, this will be over in about 30 seconds. That's the only weak spot in this. This is not just one of the best mid-budget action film, action horror ever made. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal werewolf film. And you don't get... I think werewolves are one of these things that people are very afraid of tackling. Yeah. Uh, because they're often hard to do well. And I think Neil Marshall does a perfect job of... Whenever you do see them, they look good and they look effective and they look scary and they look human-esque without yes. obviously just being per somebody in a suit. But generally you don't. Generally you, you see 
these shadows and outlines and little hints of them and the damage that they do. Uh, this release has had some criticism uh, from Blu-ray purists who've taken exception to some of the uh, the uh, color balance on this. Yeah. Um, however, Neil Marshall, I think, has pretty much told them to go fuck themselves because he's actually said, yeah, I never liked how it looked originally. So this is actually, it's the same cut, but this is the director's version. This is the film Neil Marshall wanted it to be. Right. And how, how he always wanted it to look. And, and it's great. I, I, this is one of these ones. If you like good action horror um, of the kind they just don't make anymore, because I think this kind of thing just does not get the budget anymore. No. Uh, Neil, Mar- Neil Marshall has said this is the reason that he's uh, pretty much stopped making films and gone into TV and working on things like Game of Thrones, is that you, you, you can do the same thing to the same level, but you know, to do it in a film, either you've got to cut it to like a $50,000 budget or try and boost it to $200 million. And he's like, I'm not interested in doing that. Yeah. This is, I, it's almost sad that you don't get this kind of film made anymore. But this is the one where Marshall made his reputation. And you want to see why this guy is now a go-to television horror and fantasy director. You need this in your collection. Yes, you absolutely do. This is one you will return to and want to show your friends and like put on on Halloween night and what have you. It's kind of a modern classic, I think. Yeah. I'm willing to go that far with it. Uh, it's also Shout Factory or Scream Factory, as it were. Uh, and so it means there's a decent amount of special features on here, including a short film by Neil Marshall called Combat, uh, a hour-long Werewolves versus Soldiers, which is very in-depth uh, background piece with interviews and what have you, and uh, you know, talking about the making of this thing. Uh, there's another piece on the production design, a photo photo galleries, and audio commentary with Neil Marshall. So you're really getting your money's worth with this. Yeah, one. this is this is a must. This is a must buy. If you well, like it's horror. a tough week because there's so much so stuff. So much is like, good stuff. This is a, this is one of the best weeks I think we've had in a long while. It's one of those ones like almost everything. I want to say this is a possibility for pick of the week. Yeah, but this is still not in my pick of the week. Neither is the next film. Although once again. It comes close. It comes very close. As It Follows, finally coming out on Blu-ray, uh, one of the two best horror films from last year, yeah. along with The Duke, both of which I was lucky enough to see at Fantastic Fest. Uh, it Follows is a very 80s-feeling horror film. It feels like, like how did I never see this film that spawned seven sequels? Yes. If, but it hasn't. It's just this. It's this girl has sex with this dude, and then he's like... Yeah, sorry, I just gave you an STD that causes a su- invisible supernatural entity that looks like whoever it wants to that will follow you until the end of, until it finally touches you and you die. Oh, but you can tag someone else as it if you have sex with someone else. Yeah. So it, and the problem is if they get killed, then it reverts back to you. And so she's running around with like this thing that just would never runs, it just walks but never stops coming. Uh It's kind of a post-coital version of the ring. Yeah. In, in its MacGuffin. But uh, it's carried so well. <laughs> David Robert Mitchell, this is his debut feature as a director and writer. Um, and make a, this Micah is Monroe playing Micah Monroe, lead. who had a, a brilliant double whammy last year with this and The Guest. Yeah. Um, this is, again, you, you, need, you like horror, this has to be in your collection. There's this sense of creeping dread. And one of the things that Mitchell does very well is an opening sequence that throws you right into the middle of what's happening and with no warning shows you exactly how bad this possession 
or infestation or alien attack, and it's never defined what it is. No. He never says what it is. No, this which is, is, how which do you is deal why with it feels like the first chapter in a whole franchise yes. of films. And it's and that like lots it's designed intentionally so you could interpret this as being metaphorical for any number of things. Like you can put your interpretations on what this is and what it's saying, but the director has said, I'm not personally that interested in where it comes from. To me it's dream logic in the sense they're in a nightmare. When you're in a nightmare, there's no solving the nightmare, even if you try to solve it. He wanted to make a good horror movie with yeah. a new idea, and he really did. And yeah. he, even though it's odd that here's this like it's hard not to call it iconic, like new creature that has no defined appearance. Yeah. <laughs> He's your mom or the babysitter or the mailman. Or this random naked guy standing on your roof. Yeah, exactly. And this is classic Eros and Thanatos horror, which is, you know, one of the core themes of 80 slashes. And yeah. it, uh, but it, it transcribes that so well uh, to Detroit. He shot this in his native Detroit. Um, and it's, it's fascinating because so much of what you see filmed in Detroit is about the areas that are totally collapsing. This is the suburbs that are doing okay and when these these teenagers... Except for the invisible STD killers. Yeah, but when the teenagers want to rebel, they actually, they they go over the eight mile. And there's these little bits and references that place this so specifically uh, in Detroit... And I, that's one of the things I really liked about it, that I really appreciated about this film. This is, it's also final proof. Like, if you've got a good idea and a camera, go make your film, because it's pretty much what Mitchell did. And there's reasons why this went from being a zero budget, didn't have a distro deal, to actually getting a, a wide platform release uh, last year and getting a, a solid DVD release this year. This, yeah. is, this is a really great little film. It's fun is what's yeah. most important about this one. And it does have that same sort of... I mean, like like 20 minutes into this, I'm thinking the original Nightmare on Elm Street is what it's reminding me of on some level. Not that we're seeing anything that's specific from that. It's just the feel of yeah. it. Uh, now, this, of course... And it's teenagers written as teenagers. It is. They're not super smart. They don't no. suddenly have a great witty line. It's like, yeah, they, they, come come up, they come up with plans and you go... Well, that's not going to work, and and they try it, and you go, well, I told you it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Then it doesn't overwrite the characters, and uh, I, I that's something I really appreciate. Well, that's about this. it's that they come up with these Scooby Doo plans that, but that in a lesser horror film would have worked, and they totally fall on their face. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, is it's funny that they're going through it. You're like, that's not going to work yet, and then it doesn't work, and you're like, I told you, run, yeah, or just go fuck somebody. And, and the fact <laughs> that it's. The, the whole idea that whatever this is can only get to you at kind of fast walking pace and therefore yeah. if you drive off you buy yourself some time but it's still coming for you and, we still and that, sh- that should be a silly gimmick I mean like the right. um, the short from a few years ago uh, about the uh, kind of deathly killer who follows this guy and over a period oh, of the years spoon guy? beats him to death with the spoon yeah, yeah. you know that almost feels like a, a a preemptive spoof of this yeah. and you can think well this shouldn't work it should be silly but uh, yeah, like I said Mitchell I think just knocks it out of the park on his first film he does um, and keeps that air of tension and, and the suspension of disbelief of something that could feel daft really just feels menacing uh, and uncontrollable uh, now there is some extra features on here including a poster art gallery 
uh, which a whole bunch of different artists came out and made their own interpretations of the posters on it. So that's that's pretty cool. This was well loved by genre fans from like boom from right from the its launch. Like holy shit, did you guys see it? Follows yeah. fuck. Uh, there's a conversation with the film composer Disaster Piece. Yeah, I, that's okay. Uh, and then an audio commentary featuring a bunch of critics, including Eric D. Snyder, who is featured on one of our weekly podcasts, Movie BS. Yeah, I hey, up, Eric. Thought I would bring that up there. Yes. <laughs> Talking. Hey, hey, I think you dro- I, I think you dropped this name. Do you want it back? <laughs> well, Clang. You know, I had to say you did. You know, and our buddy Scott Weinberg is hey, up, on Scotty. there as well. Uh, th- talking about all the stuff in the film and basically just getting all gooey about how much they love it. So yeah, it follows just tremendous a horror don't miss film for sure. Uh, now I think I'm, we're a little bit split on the unwanted. Here. I think we're gonna we're, we, we're gonna have a divergence of opinion here. Yeah. Now I don't think horribly so, but I think we are. Yeah. I didn't hate the unwanted at all. I didn't even dislike the unwanted, but that doesn't change the fact that it still feels like like that unicorn of a lifetime movie that's watchable. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, which, we're, but now we're, we're on but we're we're dangerous <laughs> dangerous ground there because you know you know my. My feelings about Lifetime. Uh, I would I would refer to this more as a a high end Cinemax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe so. Or, or stars. I think the division here uh, that you're going to pick up on, folks, is that uh, I have much more of a soft spot for aspirational Z grade horror. Yeah. Than, than Chris does. Yeah, you're and like, that's just me. You're you know, like, I hey, just like they tried. They harder. tried, and I admire that. And the, you know, I, I will always find the the glimmers of gold in the dust. Well, I that's, think that's 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 where we slightly disagree. Sli- not even disagree. I think that's just a divergence of taste. Well, I think that like I, that's the thing I most like about the unwanted is that yeah, it was trying to do something different. You know, it really was. It's just hampered by the incredibly low budget the really mediocre performances, you know, and the desire to slide into softcore porn as often as possible during it. Now, you can't necessarily blame them. It's inspired by Carmilla, an 1872 Irish novella about lesbian vampires. Well, it's not explicitly about lesbian vampires, but, but it's, it's textually hard and, not to read it. And over the years, Carmilla has been... Uh, particularly was adopted, by, adopted and adapted by the Italians very heavily, who went... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, Vampiros Lesbos. <laughs> like, let, let's let's throw all that in. This transplants it kind of into the Midwest, uh, where a uh, this woman gets off the gets off the bus looking for her mother. Yeah, who is a drifter and was her life was you know she's not, I don't think she even actually met her. No, if I remember correctly, but she's like you know her mother had problems, but she's been tracking her down and tracks her down to this house out in the middle of nowhere that William Cat, yes, the greatest American hero, but now looking like a grandpa in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with long hair, <laughs> you know, is living there with his super hot daughter, uh, played by uh, Hannah Fairman, who, if you've seen the original VHS. 
Oh, was she? Oh, she was the the like a uh, succubus. She character. was the succubus. No wonder she looked so familiar. Yeah. Okay. She has these incredible eyes. Yeah, she does. She her they're, eyes they're are beyond like, piercing. They're kind of like they're, they're slightly terrifying. Well, they're and like hypnotic. they look like she like somebody slightly photoshopped the screen to make her eyes unusually big, like in the Black Hole Sun video by Soundgarden. Yeah, you know? but no, nope, that's just her. <laughs> yeah, it's just her. They're that big. I mean, like Amanda Seyfried is like seriously, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Your eyes are huge, lady. Uh, and she, you know the daughter's like very lonely out there, and she kind of befriends her. Is like you know what. I like tells her dad why don't I why don't we let her stay in the trailer and that turns out that like yes indeed her mother had stayed at this house before living in the trailer albeit briefly and then went on her way and as the film continues we find out okay of course there's more to the story of course there was more of a she it was more than a passing connection between her and this family as it's discovered and while this is happening we also a relationship starts developing between the two women that develops not just as a sexual thing, but as a uh, blood-drinking thing. Now, which is not to say this is a supernatural film, because it is not. Yeah. This is more about cutters and and people who, you know, people who, like, get either sexual pleasure from cutting or do it to, like, uh, uh, relieve anxiety or some combination of the two. It's just kind of transposes Carmilla. And what's weird is in the, like, the, the girl plays Carmilla, Kristen Orr, like, in the book, she's decidedly the vampire. Yeah. And here, it's not really that clear-cut who is the one who's seducing the other. Uh, and it is a fascinating relationship. I just wish it was better made. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly extremely low budget. Yeah. Um, you know, they're obviously shooting this in friends' houses. Oh yeah, <laughs> or, or and trail. where somebody works. You yeah. know, it's like uh, you know, and, and that, that shines through in every scene. But you know, I, it has a charm that worked for me. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, it, it reminded me in some ways with this question of like, well, is, is this really a vampire movie or is this a relationship movie? It had shades of Martin. In yeah. places, not as well done. No, um, but you know, I, yeah, if you like low budget indie horror, I, yeah, that's not uh, it follows level achievement, no. but is more kind of like the the top of the middle of the pack. I think this definitely is something you'll be interested in. It's not going to be for everybody. Yeah. Um, although yep. the, yeah, and it does get a bit softcore in the middle. But even the softcore scene actually has a really good horror reveal. There are several softcore scenes. Well, yeah, but there's there. one big one. Yeah. But that that actually has a really, a really fascinating horror reveal because it, it's not, it doesn't blanch from where the fact that it's, it's subject material is a little bit squeamish. Uh, going to make some people a bit squeamish. And it actually does that quite well. Uh, uh, I don't think this isn't going to be the world's greatest film, but I, uh, yeah. for anybody, but yeah, I, you know, like I said, you like low budget indie horrors. I think this is, this is going to be up your street. Well, that's the thing about this is that there's so much interesting that's inherent in it. And even the script isn't bad. It was really the performances that drove me out of this more than anything. Like, William Cat has a few moments that he just cannot pull off. You're like, okay, there's a reason why you were a television actor. You were charming and funny in your role as, like, you know, oh, this quirky, like, like a stumble bunny guy. But trying to play this dark character here, yeah, not so much. I mean, there's literally a, like, on the f- knees on the floor looking up at this guy. No! 
moment that's just laughable. <laughs> he's kind of like a less disgusting Bruce Dern. Yeah, yeah, and and not as talented. <laughs> but part of Bruce Dern's talent comes from the fact that you always feel he's vaguely disgusting and untrustworthy. True, true. Yeah. Uh, and neither one of these actresses, although both very attractive, neither one of them feel like they're at that point that they were ready for this. No. You know, like I think they both look like they could handle smaller projects, but there's so much, like, there's so much inherent in the script that someone who was better could have done more for that's really effective. I kept imagining different actors in this and that even with everything else in here that's so low budget how this would have transcended up to like a much higher level yeah. with that uh, so it's, I thought it was kind of a missed opportunity to not hold out and try and get somebody some better people for it but you know you look at your own script you're like look I'm satisfied with it I think it's good but you can never really tell no like and it's a hard sell getting to that level you know anyway it's uh, a shame kudos for getting it made kudos for doing something that's not just you know we're going to throw some blood bags against a wall and, and that's it no that's very true agree with that completely uh, next up coming from art exploitation cinema is reckless which is uh, I believe German uh, is it German no I think it's Dutch is it Dutch okay a Dutch remake of the movie The Disappearance of Alice Creed an American film uh, which came out quite a few years ago try again what? Try again. Try again about what? Not American. Is it not American? Is it British? British? Yes. Okay, sorry, British. It's been yeah. a while since I saw it, but I remember it was one of those films that uh, I there was a lot of like excitement about, and then I saw it and went, eh, it was all right. The twists didn't really sell for me completely. It's a very like, oh, here's a twist. Oh, here's another twist. And by the end, I was like, you know, it's not a bad film. I just didn't really see what all the excitement about. However, I thought Reckless did a much better job of it than the English version. I was surprised that I enjoyed this more. Maybe I just like the performances more? I'm not really sure. But either way, the story here follows two guys who uh, have kidnapped this girl and have set it all up. They've got, like, you know, I mean, they, they have massive planning. They've got this place set up, and she's chained to the bed and everything. And They've soundproofed it. I mean, basically, the first 20 minutes of this film are how getting, to kidnap someone. Yeah, I, it's a lesson on how to kidnap someone. It totally is. Uh, you know, not that I think I'd ever have to do this or would want to, but it's good to know just in case. You, you never know. You never know. It's and, good to have options. Yeah. Uh, and as the story goes along, you know, at first it's a very standard, like, you're like, where is this going? I mean, it's interesting. It's very well filmed. It's very well acted. But where is this story going? It's just a kidnapping and these guys going through the motions. Uh, and it's clear one guy's a little, flies off the handle pretty easily, is the older guy. And one guy is a younger guy who's a little more, like, a little scared of the other one. But nonetheless, they always seem to work it out. You know, they're not going into the, the guy's not flying off the hand with the level of like attacking him or anything. And, and it's one of those movies it's hard to say anything about because, like, about the midway point, they introduce the first major twist that changes the entire context of the film. Uh, and I can't tell you that without spoiling the whole film for you, uh, which is unfortunate because it makes it extremely difficult to talk about. But the. I mean, it's basically a, a sealed room three-hander. Oh, yeah. Where the the tension always comes from when somebody is out of the room. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I, I like this. I do prefer the original. Um, I think the original had a, a certain claustrophobia about it that I think was more effective. This didn't feel like it had that 
and I know some people felt that the original had that had the, almost a staginess about it. Yeah. But I, I, for me, that worked better. I think uh, the cinematography in the original version. It was tighter. It was closer. The first twenty minutes, basically a note for note edit, re-edit of it. It, it. It's so similar. Um, I think I just preferred the performances as well in the original. I think it, it had this kind of sense of menace and malice that I think this lacks to a certain degree. The the that's the, almost a feeling of trying to make the characters a little bit too likable. See, but I think that's what I liked about it because they felt more human and it felt like. It felt more like anything can happen, you know. And sure enough, like this plot requires you to be convincing to believe that this could go either way. Yeah. You know, these are not neither one of these guys are monsters. You know, they're just you know they're criminals, sure, but they're trying to do the best they can, and each of them have their own motives for doing the things that they're doing. Uh, not all of which are necessarily negative motives, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, I suppose. Well, I think the other, the other uh, issue I have with this, the, where there's a pivotal change, is that um, it is the actress uh, playing the, the kidnap victim. Uh, in this, Sarah Cronus, I think she was a little bit too likable. Uh, whereas in the original, uh, I mean, because that was Gemma... Uh, Arthur's uh, breakout role, right? Um, she's not very likable either. So you you're kind of not playing favorites with any of them because you kind of don't like any of them. But at the same, but time, then they be, at the end, I think the difference is that they become humanized and weak and frail in the final act, and you see each one their sensibilities come into play. And I think I preferred that. I think this came at it and was like, oh no, we kind of understand where everybody's coming from. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want that in the first act. I want more. I, I, I prefer the third act reveal of them being weak and flawed. So I guess for uh, me, this or, has... also the other problem I have, and this is actually I think a a genuine problem I have with this, rather than just a difference in in taste and emphasis. Uh, the disappearance of Alice Creed is very open ended. It is the the Final scene. You're not sure is what happens. Very ambiguous. Right. This spoon feds a, res- a resolution, and I did not like that. I thought that was clumsy and inessential, and I uh, that was the point where I'm like, you made changes that are not to my taste. I think that that rewrite of the final of the final scene was wrong. I think I, that just did not work for me at all. And I, I mean, I do think you should see this. I, I think you should also see Disappearance of Alice Creed, just because I, I do prefer that a little bit more. Um, I, but I've got to say, this is yet another solid release from Artsploitation, who had just you know come out of the gates, putting some really good stuff out, putting out some daring European horror and sure. thriller stuff. And I think you know it, they're a label that I'm glad are back in existence. Uh, you know, it's funny, both those points, I, I come on the other side of I'm like either... Either they're all unlikable or they're all likable, and I think you end up having interesting results either way, but I like the they're all likable result better that this one gets. I thought, like, I prefer... Ever the optimist! I prefer a movie where I not only can sympathize with at least one character, but I can sympathize with all of them to some extent, even while they're making bad decisions. I'm like, I, think, I think you still can, but decisions. I think it's, it's uh, uh, with them, but I think you, you come to that likability at a different point in the narrative yeah. in Alice Creed, and, I, and I, it, that just has a little bit of an edge for me on this. And I think because the fact that this is going for more sympathetic characters is why it makes more sense to give you more of a described ending, actually. 
actually, and I think it works better here where it wouldn't have worked. Oh, it would have. It, it would have. I, I still didn't like the fact that it it goes, and this is what happens. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I didn't need that. I really didn't need that, and I and I kind of found myself getting frustrated with that last minute. And I think it'd be interesting for other people who've seen Dispense of Alice Creed how they're going to feel about that. But if you haven't seen either, then full recommendation, see both. No, fair enough. Next up is the Criterion release of the week, Ernest Hemingway's The Killers. Speaking of (laughs) remake and an adaptation at the same time. Yeah, it's both versions of this film. Uh, In fact, more, more technically, it's four versions of this film. It's four versions of the story. Uh, there, uh, on this release, you have the uh, 1946 adaptation of uh, Hemingway's short story uh, directed by Robert Seidmack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have the 1964 version, which I think is a lot more famous. Uh, with Don Siegel. Even though the 1946 version was given, was considered critically much higher significantly than than the later version was. But there is also a short version by, and I'm trying to remember the director's name, but it's going to drive me mad and I can't remember it, um, which is actually a a straight adaptation of the Hemingway short story. Um, And there's also a 1948 uh, radio adaptation using the cast from the 46 version. So there's actually four versions of this film, uh, of this story on this disc. This is kind of the definitive... uh, Oh, yes, Andrei Andrei Tarkovsky. His his short version, which was actually his uh, graduating thesis. So this is... As always with Criterion, an insanely loaded disc. But the, you know what you're really coming for is the 46 and the 64 version, right? And these are uh, now. First off, let me just say that both these films, it's really only the first 20 minutes of the film that is the Ernest Hemingway short story. And in fact, let's even, let's be even more clarifying. The original Ernest Hemingway story, uh, in its simplest form, is two guys walk into a diner, tie up the people working there and explain to them they're there to kill this guy called the Swede who lives nearby and always comes into this diner. One of the guys manages to get out, runs to the Swede's place and tells him there's two guys who are coming to kill you. And he just go, he basically goes, well, it's bound to happen sooner or later. And that's the and story. It, and, and accepts it. Total ambiguity. You know, it's one of Hemingway's... M- slightest most defined stories you, you it's it's a rorschach test of a narrative um the 1946 version basically says well why why does he want to do this and after that scene it moves into this lengthy this, the full narrative where burt lancaster as uh, as, as the, the swede, swede. Who, uh, who dies in the beginning yeah so but- this is all police investigation and flashback <laughs> And it's basically a classic noir of a guy who is a dupe for a beautiful woman, uh, a a robbery uh, gone wrong, double crosses, and it's about the police trying to unfurl this. With some, and, and uh, more importantly, the life insurance investigator played by Ed, Edmund O'Brien, who's investigating here, and like closing in on like every single single story seems to coalesce with something to do with Kitty Collins, the the femme fatale of the story played here by the gorgeous Ava Gardner, uh, and it's interesting when you compare this to the later version, the 1964 film, that in, whereas in the first one, William Conrad and Charles McGraw, who play the killers, are barely in the film. They're in at the beginning, and they're in it a little bit later on, but it's not about them. No. You know? Uh, the, the later 64 film, they make it where 
inexplicably, really, they're like, huh, that's weird that this happened. Let's go and try and find out why. It's well, like, no, why, that's why would I'm, you do that? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I think it, it, that it's, it's very well set up because you've got um, uh, uh, Lee Marvin and John Cassavetes as the... Or as, Clue Gallagher. Oh, Clue Gallagher, rather, yeah. as the... As the uh, Two, as the two killers yeah. and Marvin has basically been around the block a few times and he just goes this doesn't add up and you almost get the feeling you're going like either there's an opportunity for us to get rich out of this because we're being paid way too much to kill this guy who just stands there and takes it yeah played by John Cassavetes yeah and you just or something is is screwy here because the guy stood there and took it nothing about this adds up and as a seasoned criminal you can see him going I don't like this I want yeah. to know what it is because it, this just is going to something is wrong about it. So this time it's the killers as the actual investigators, and, it, and it's what's fascinating is that this is a remake in many ways of the narrative that is created in the forty-six version. Uh, the Swede, instead of being a, a boxer down on his luck, is now a race car driver out on his luck, and right. it's the same thing. It's a robbery. It's a femme fatale. What it doesn't actually have is the diner sequence from the Hemingway short story. It actually right. cuts that off completely and instead replaces it with this, uh, my favourite sequence in the film, which is uh, uh, the killers going into a blind school, which is where Casabetti's character has, has found himself working and being pretty much the most unpleasant characters you've ever seen in cinema. I mean, they are vile they're yeah. beating up blind people oh, in a school for the blind. And it's like, I, I think it's telling at the time when this was made that this is the take, take that the 60s film made and the 40s film t- took a very traditional, okay, well, let's find the hero. We have to have strong hero characters yeah. here. I mean, like, certainly noir was happening in the 40s, but it was few and far between to really have a film that was following a truly vile character as your main character. Yeah. There's only a few double indemnities out there from that period of time anyway. Uh and this has got weird things in it, like Angie Dickinson plays the uh, the femme fatale type character. Angie Cla- Dickinson has some huge hair. Claude Akins. I mean, there's a lot of television actors in this, and it feels like a... It was actually originally a television movie. Was it? Okay, because it they, feels so, it, they, more like that. The, the networks went, this is... This is too rich for our blood, and that's why it was released cinematically. It, it also explains why they can get both versions of the film and all these extras on one di- on, one, on one disc, right? <laughs> because uh, they're not high, they're not super high res. Let's put it that way. And then the main bad guy is Ronald Reagan in, in his, his final, final role before he went into politics. Yep, uh, and he's very plausible as an extreme scumbag. And the only time he ever played a villain, too. Only time you ever Which is weird on. because you would have thought you see him in this and you're like, wow, you should have done this more. Yeah, it was much rather than going to You had the look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's just because I associate Reagan with felony. Yes, well, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, the the, 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 easy, the the big question which version do you prefer? Oh, definitely the 46 yeah, version. By yeah, by far. By, by a huge stretch. The, uh, the Cassavetes, I, I feel uh, like Dickinson relationship, just it's 60s cheese to a certain there's degree there's no chemistry at no, all between uh, those two but the best thing is the is the two killers themselves and I would have watched an hour and a half of those two just sleezing around and breaking people's legs completely it agree phenomenal whereas, uh, whereas I go I prefer the idea of having us follow the killers doing this I there's no question that the movie was better the original 46 one I mean you've got Burke Lancaster and Ava Gardner for Christ's sakes there is also in the uh, the, the uh, 64 version there 
is some of the worst back projection I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like there, there is a moment, and I think it probably wouldn't have looked as bad at the time, or as bad on film, or as bad on a you know grainy television. But uh, on a nice high def screen from a, a good restoration, it, it's jarring. <laughs> no, that's it's like you can't blame the past for for the techniques that we use, but it really will make you go, "Ooh, dear, that's a bit not." It's. I think this is a worthy collection to get. It's a. It's certainly like calling it Ernest Hemingway's The Killers is a bit of a stretch once again, considering everything well, that only- made that that story so remarkable is what you don't say, not what's said. And these well, are thing, like- the, the only version that is Hemingway's The Killers is the 15-minute Tarkovsky version, which right. is on here as well. <laughs> uh, still very much worth seeing, like I said, are they terrific. Burt Lancaster's first major performance yeah. in this, uh, and he's wonderful in it. Oh, yeah. He really is. Uh, anyway, moving on to King of the Gypsies, also known in my speech as We Wish This Was the Godfather. Oh, my, don't they? <laughs> they so wish this was the Godfather. Uh, and that being said, this is not a bad movie at all. It's just not the Godfather. Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this came out in 1978 with a teenaged Eric Roberts, who is a, a young member. Before you started looking all sweaty and weird. Yeah. Yeah. Before something happened that sapped his acting ability. <laughs> yeah, well, um, Somebody, like, he got bit by an acting vampire or something <laughs> at some point. Because remember when he was I in... I to suck your talent. Well, he was in a lot of good films early in his career. And he was, like, getting nominations and awards for his performances. And then all of a sudden, he's, like, the worst actor out there. Last last credit that he had? Yeah. Human Centipede 3. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Last good, last good performance he did, though. Dark Knight Rises. Yes, that's Which true. Which he was actually good at. Well, maybe part of it is that he just, he'll take anything, and the problem is he just doesn't give a shit when he's in those things. I think that is the problem. I've seen him in a few things where I'm like, you really should not. But I think if you've got a director that's going to yell at you and remind you you're earning your paycheck, I think he's going to still be good. In this, he's kind of legitimately good. Oh, he really is. I mean, he is the centerpiece of this film about a group of modern-day gypsies that are living in New York City, and uh, their king, played by Sterling Hayden, is uh, kind of a bully, but he still really cares about his grandson, uh, uh, Dave, that Eric Roberts is playing. The problem is that Dave has decided he wants nothing more to do with the gypsy lifestyle and wants out, which is not easy to do. Uh, This sounding, once again, very familiar to The Godfather. Uh, He has Once I get out of the palm reading business, they pull me back in. He has met an outside girl played by Annette O'Toole here, who's young and lovely, and... uh, Everything, you know, they're kind of leaving him alone until it turns out that Sterling Hayden, the king, is dying and wants to pass on the kingship to Eric Roberts, which is a problem because Eric Roberts' dad, Groffo, played by Judd Hirsch, is technically the one who should be next in line, but he's such an asshole, and everybody knows it. He's a drunken, wife-beating piece of shit that the king is like, yeah, we're going to just, like, skip ahead. And this causes no small amount of chaos, especially Judd Hirsch flat out just orders a hit on Eric Roberts. You know, you're like... Uh, wow, this is a this family dynamic is weird. Uh, especially Susan Sarandon is a gypsy palm reader as your mom, and Judd Hirsch is your dad. The- Susan Sarandon, who I think is in a different film. Yeah, she really. I mean, there's a lot of overblown in this, but she really, I 
think we thought this was a comedy. Yeah, or, or uh, a bit, like, seems a little bit is just doesn't seem to mesh. She's with waiting for Larry Talbot to come in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas Judd Hirsch is. This is one of the best things he's ever done. See, this is where we're going to disagree, because I thought the main thing holding this back from being a better movie is Judd Hirsch. I never bought him in this role. I always, I felt like the whole time he was just kind of reading the lines, and that's about it. You know? I, I, so I kind of got this sullen little man brutality. He knows that the only reason he's got the authority that he does is because of his father, and he's just a thug. You know, I, 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 he, for me, he was one of the best things about it. I mean, this is flawed because in so many little ways, not least the, not the huge first, ways, but, but the first 30, 35 minutes is a very flat reading of extracts from the original book uh, upon which this is based by Eric Roberts, where he, they kind of try to explain his entire life his up culture. to the age of 18, where, you know, where he's run away, and it's like, yeah, this just feels... Well, that stuff should have been so much more interesting. Yeah. I mean, and and it is interesting to some extent. I have a, a next to zero, like, knowledge about the gypsy, the actual gypsy lifestyle. And, and to be clear, this was written, the original book written by a gypsy. They brought in, like, some, like, seven or eight technical advisors who were actual real-life gypsies. They really it's based wanted on a, it's, this... It's based to, on a true story Yeah, well. they wanted this to be as, like, true to life as as humanly possible. So you actually are looking to... As far as I know, pretty much the only Hollywood representation of modern-day gypsy culture. Uh, and that – it is interesting, but it should have been so much more interesting. I think the problem is that the structure is so flat. Mm-hmm. It's really like, and then, and then, and then. Oh, and we've got a lot to explain, so we're going to do a montage. And then. And, it's, and you just think, well – there's 50,000 ways you could do this in a more interesting fashion. And it goes back to The Godfather. You look at how The Godfather approached explaining an entire culture of a criminal, of a, a criminal syndicate. Um, it does it through flashback, and it does it through hints and suggestions and character development. This just goes, oh, yeah, and then we used to you know, shake down people with uh, fortune telling, and we used to do this, and we used to do that. And they're literally explaining it to you. And I'm like... You go back, you rebuild this film from the ground up, from the script up. You, you've got something really worthwhile, and you've got a lot of good material here. But it, it does become an object lesson in how other films that try something similar do it so much better. Yeah, I mean, this is almost the film you should watch after The Godfather to see how easily that film could have been screwed up. You know, uh, this is like the, the rough draft if yeah. you will. This is the one where it's like, no, the reason we went this way instead of that way is because of this. Now, that being said, there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. There's a lot of stuff to make it really worth watching. And the fact that Eric Roberts is just acting his teenage ass off in this movie, I mean, really doing a good job yeah. in this, is, is you know, this will This will alone. explain to you why, why Eric Roberts still keeps getting work. Yeah. I mean, what was the other big one? It was like uh, early on. He was a little older than this, but uh, he had another big starring role that he got nominated for a bunch of awards for. Uh, and bl- the Doctor Who television movie? What? Yes, that's what That it was is. it. <laughs> it was the Doctor Who television movie. Well, I mean, he was in like the last one he got an award for, I think, or nomination was Runaway Train in 85, which no. was truly a great fucking movie. But it was, god damn it, it's fucking killing me trying to remember the name of this movie. It's uh, like the Prince of something, or the, uh, see, I'm having to look through Wikipedia. The Pope of Greenwich Pope Village. Of Greenwich Village. <laughs> A lot of people were like, which was like the year before that, <laughs> before Runaway Train. Star 
rate here as well. Yeah, Stop, I mean, really. this is, he started I, off so strong. A few people, I think, have pissed away opportunity quite as badly. I mean, it, you look how quickly he goes from being Eric Roberts to being Julia Roberts' washed-up brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, like a, it's a, like a two-year a period punchline like. on Family Guy. Yeah, at this point, uh, this also Brooke Shields in one of her very early roles plays his little sister in here, and Annie Potts. You remember the secretary from Ghostbusters? Yep. Well, here she's fucking hot. <laughs> it was like she was hot in Ghostbusters, son. Well, yeah. she was kind of. Ah. I mean, like she was dressed down. She needed to walk down a staircase in slow motion on prom night. Ghost, Ghostbusters 2. I the seduction sequence in Ghostbusters 2. I only barely remember. It's, it's one of the funniest seduction sequences ever in cinema. You need, you need to go back and rewatch that. Also, Ghostbusters 2 aged surprisingly well, but that's the point for a different day. Yeah, I, I haven't watched Ghostbusters 2 for quite some time, and my memories of the last rewatch was like, nope, still don't think it's that good of a movie. But I know lots of you disagree with me, so that's okay. Uh, next up is Clouds of Silmaria. We actually saw this in the theater and did not review it because, uh, if I'm not mistaken... I think one of our, I think somebody wrote a review like before we were even going to record it and put it up. I can't remember, but either way, we didn't end up reviewing this. Did you see this in the theater? No, I didn't see it in the theater, okay. but I did see. It. I, I've seen it now. And now this has gotten a lot of kudos this year from quite a few critics. Several people calling it one of the best of the year. I personally disagree. I am also going to disagree with them. <laughs> I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in this, but I think there's some of the worst, most awkward cinematic decisions in terms of editing in terms of like just oh you know what we're going to do this scene like a music video for no apparent reason that go on throughout this film that I was just like kind of baffled watching it going what are you doing movie Uh, for a little art like not even art film just indie film it just felt reaching overreaching like crazy uh, Juliette Binoche, who I love to pieces, it plays a international movie star and stage actress, very famous. She travels around with her uh, basically best friend and her assistant, Valentine, played by Kristen Stewart. Now, remember, if you see Kristen Stewart in something that's not a Twilight movie, she's actually usually pretty good. And here she's pretty good. Mm. I mean, she's not one of the great actresses or anything, but let's face it, you know, Twilight was not... I mean, how does anyone read those lines and come off well? <laughs> By mouthing help me to the screen? Yeah, that, you um, know, maybe she should have, like... Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, we see that, like, uh, Julie Benoche owes her whole career to having been cast 20 years earlier in a, the play and then the film version of something called Malo, Ma, Mahola Snake uh, by this guy Wilhelm Melchior, who is now a very old Swiss pr- playwright. And uh, as these two are... Uh, going along, it finds out that he has died suddenly, and so it changes all the plans, and they're going to go to his house in this place, Sils Maria, way up in the mountains. Beautiful, beautiful, like, uh, surroundings, but I wouldn't want to live there. No. Probably no Wi-Fi, is all no. I'm saying. <laughs> uh, this short supply. You know, starts flashing back to, like, what this, I mean, the play was about the this relationship between a young girl and a vulnerable older woman who eventually kills herself. And in the original play, uh, uh, Julia Benouche played the young girl. And now, with all this going on, like his death and this award ceremony where uh, she has agreed to speak at in memoriam for him, she's approached to appear on stage in it, but this time as the older woman. And this kind of starts fucking up her life and thinking about how much 
like her life has changed in terms of like is she she doesn't want to think of herself as the older woman anymore yeah and how this is representative in some ways of the relationship between her and her assistant and there's a lot i think honestly of interesting subtext going on here i mean in some ways the best stuff in this film are things that no one ever actually says out loud that you have to read into it uh chloe uh, grace moretz plays the young actress who is you know, this totally full of self shallow young lady who's been chosen to uh, play Sigrid. But, uh, like, she's like, what am I doing? Why am I working with this woman? She's, like, got scandals online and is, like, seems to be just a mess. You know, uh, she's Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, yeah, you kind of go, your last good film was was supposed to be Mean Girls-esque, wasn't it? You know, she's that kind of character. Yeah, where I will disagree with you in my criticism of this... Uh, because while there is a lot to admire about this, uh, I didn't feel there was any subtext. I think everything that this film did and was talking about, about actresses aging, about their position in theatre, about the relative uh, roles of older and younger women in in the entertainment industry, it was all spelled out so obviously. And then... The, the, the running motif is that all the way through, um, uh, Benoche and uh, Stewart's characters are running lines from the play. And it, it's like, oh, so is this an actual conversation between the two of them? Or is this a line from the play? Sure. Ah, and it's, you're kind of going, yeah, I see what you did there. And for me, this was two hours of going, yeah, I... I see what you did there well i and i, I felt I, I really felt like i was being hit over the head that multi-level <laughs> of it i i actually did enjoy that where it was trying to do that and i thought that yes you're supposed to get that i don't think there's any level which you're not supposed to i don't think that's the sort of thing you should try to but I, no but I, I, nothing about that felt a subtle or nuanced or, or deep as a lot of this film's uh, strongest defenders have done i mean yeah i no, i, I, I agree like the fact they that. did it but it, you know it felt like Every time they're doing that, there's a moment where you're supposed where they go, "Aha! See, we were running lines from the play." And I'm like, "No, I got that as soon as you opened your mouth, because you're not delivering these lines in the way that you have any of your normal conversations. It's so separate that this this constant little narrative trap they're trying to set for the audience, it's clear from miles away. And so I'm just like, "Well, yeah, I get it. I get it. You you you've done this, and this has a fourth act." That is just clumsy. Well, it's dull. It's clod hopping. <laughs> well, for one thing, the major relationship of this the, film how, will, will have conceded. The fourth act is a terrible mistake. Well, one problem is that the, one of the major characters, Kristen Stewart, just leaves the movie. Yeah. She's like, okay, well, I'm going to go do this other thing now, and she's not in it. And yeah. you're like, that was the movie, the relationship this movie is about, and you're trying to substitute her with Chloe Grace Moretz, who is, you know, to her credit, trying to play this totally shallow character as shallow as she can and sure enough she's wildly uninteresting but that's the the ultimate point where this uh, blending of, of, of texts really fails because this is supposed to be a reference to what happens in the play and it's like oh yeah you just simulated that but then you simulate it and then you never refer to it in the fourth act um, which just seems like a, a, a terrible misfire this is not a smart or nuanced a movie as it as it liked to think oh, it is. I, I completely it's, agree. It's debts to Bergman are uh, bl- not just 
blatant. Well, the, yeah. they, I mean, they, they should just be sending Bergman a check. The fact that the, the character of Wilhelm is clearly supposed to be Bergman. You yeah. know, I mean, they're yeah, they, you're right. This is more than anything a tribute to him. Just a misguided one and a sloppy one. Yeah. Holy shit! The editing in this was so sloppy. There were so many continuity errors in this. It was just littered with continuity errors. Like just basic. Like how in the fuck did you just fuck that up? Yeah. Like just one after another big one. And like I said, you remember the sequence I'm talking about where she goes for a drive and suddenly in the middle of the film it's a music video for no oh, apparent reason at oh, all. Oh, that was stupid as all hell. Nothing to do with anything. Yeah. There's no good reason for it to be that way and to change the entire. T- you know, timber of the film, like for five minutes, because the director always wanted to make a music video. I mean, is he a big fan of Inglorious Bastards? Maybe, but I, you know, I don't know. Uh, that was like the one thing that really drove me crazy. I, I, Inglorious I was... Bastards was the David Boyd music video in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just I was really underwhelmed by this movie. I thought. Like I said, Juliette Binoche is always, she's classy, she's beautiful, she's wonderful to watch, and I think she's great in this, but in a film that's about her, I still never felt like I really got to know her by the end of it. No. You know? I still felt like we're watching this sort of shallow representation of her. And there were several points where I'm like, where I just felt that her character didn't make any sense, um, and it wasn't even that she was supposed to be a tender level volatile, I just thought, well, hang on, that doesn't seem like what this character would have done two scenes ago. No, I agree with I that. Mean, that's, that's highly disappointing. Uh, now, I do want to go right into this next because we're kind of going into more arty, more indie stuff and go from one we both went meh about to one we both went, oh yeah, this is the pick of the week. Oh yeah. And this is Bar none. Bar a none. French-Brazilian documentary film directed by Vim Vendors, uh, who did one of my, uh, uh, well, uh, several amazing films, but one of my all-time favorite movies, Wings of Desire. Yeah. Just worshipped the shit out of that movie. And then the subject of the film, who co-directed it with it, uh, Julian Ribeiro Salgado. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Did he? Do, no, no, no. I think he's a relative. He's. The, I'm sorry. He's the yeah, he's son, the son of the of the top subject of the film, uh, Sebastião Salgado, who is a Brazilian ph- photographer who works in black and white. And that sounds, on its surface, very dull. I understand that. You need to watch this fucking movie. You this, need. You need to not just watch. Shut thing. out the world. You need to turn, turn everything off. Turn your phone off. Get the biggest television you can yeah. and immerse yourself in the work of one of the greatest photographers and social chroniclers of the 20th and 21st century. This Salgado redefined documentary um, cinema, uh, documentary photography. Yeah. He, wasn't a, he wasn't really a news photographer. He would go to places and chronicle them Completely, he was a socio-culture, cultural photo- photographer. He actually started off as an economist. Did he really? Yeah, that's one of the things that they talk about in this is that he started off as an economist and he would oh, that's right, study yeah. you know the so the social and economic impact of uh, these huge projects and these like <laughs> like uh, diamond mines. Yes. and then he he just went. I'm not getting it. I'm not explaining what these things are just by being an economist and talking about them. Well, it's one of those, like... He goes and takes these photos, and his books are so incredibly influential on presenting places that you've never seen. Well, is that... He, yeah, I mean, he started off, literally, his wife bought a camera. He's like, oh, it'll be, I go to all these crazy places. I should take that with me and take pictures of it. And then started realizing that that was the only part of his job he was really enjoying. And he and his wife, at one point, just made a decision... 
oh, we think you're good enough at this that this could be your thing. And sure enough, <laughs> he's one of the greatest photographers in the world. And he's a guy that will... Sp- will- <coughs> take five years off to go and work on one book of photography. Yeah, and as we look at this, this is divided up into sections where it'll say, this was the name of the book, and then this is the years it took place, and then we look at those photographs, we look at uh, other footage that was shot around it. It jumps back and forth a little bit, because obviously Vin Vendors wasn't there the whole time filming with him, uh, but later on, he is, and we watch this this trip through this guy's life as he reaches spiritual rock bottom because he's taking all these pictures of just atrocities of people starving to death of being murdered just horrible horrible stuff and just coming to the point where he really believes we are a virus with shoes as bill hicks would say we deserve to be wiped off this planet there is nothing redeeming about the human race and then he changes his direction of photography entirely to starting to take nature photography. And we watch this amazing transformation in this man as he rediscovers joy and hope. And it's it's just so incredibly moving. And it, what's really great about this is that this guy who, he has gone, okay, well, I'm going to go work on this project for three years. Uh, bye, kids. Yeah. Uh, I'll see you in three years' time. Uh, you'll be out of elementary school then. It's and... amazing that he's close enough friends with his son that his son wanted to make a documentary. Well, that's the thing, because I think you know, the one thing that, he, that his wife expl- and he managed to explain to the kids is this is what I do and here's why I do it. And he's grown up going, not only having a good relationship with his father, but also understanding why his father has done the things he does and the impact of them and going, yeah, I mean, like he probably could have been here more. But when you look at what his books have done and how they have changed policy and how they have changed people's perception of the world and the way they live in it, what? I, yeah, I'm not going to put myself ahead of that. Let's be honest. This was important work. Uh, but he comes across still as very humble, as uh, you know, a guy who regards himself as a vessel for communicating these stories. Um, and the amazing thing is Vin Vendors, even in the kind of more catch-as-catch-can world of documentary filmmaking where you do not have complete control over the cinematography you know even in those circumstances he is a great cinematographer you'll have a scene where you go this is beautifully shot and then suddenly it it cuts to one of Salgado's uh, photographs and you go wow and you are knocked back in your seat because this guy is it's it's really astounding Um, even if you don't like Vin Vendors, even if you're not big, a big fan of documentaries, even if you, you don't like photographs of big animals getting into fights or forest fires or, or the world in general, this is a film you can't miss because it will open your eyes. And, this your, is, this and, is, and your heart. This is a truly revelatory film. I completely agree. Uh, even at 110 minutes long, along, it never feels too long. Flies past. It does. It flies past. I, I could have watched wait. three hours of this. You can't wait to see the next photo that's yeah. going to pop up in it. And uh, the uh, you know usually we've got Sebastio himself is narrating a lot of this. And the sequences where Vim Benders is just filming him, I mean, they're wonderfully shot. And you're just like, like you really feel like this guy is in the room with you talking to him. He just seems so soulful. He expresses himself so well really gets across what 
was happening in his heart and what was, you know, the just the stuff he was being exposed to that he was living through, that what was happening in each one of these pictures, you get stuff out of it, this film, that you can't get just from the books. No. Uh, I, damn, I like I said, this is the pick of the week. It actually brought me to tears. This, this is... Movie. This is- one of the best films this uh, uh, that I've seen this year. Yeah, this agreed, is completely uh, astounding. Really, really, really great stuff. Is there something terrible we can slag off now? Because I really feel like I like like I've kind of vented all my joy for a few minutes. Well, let me talk about one you didn't get to see, which is the second best exotic marigold hotel. The, sh- the, the second, I'm sure, in a long series of exotic marigold hotel films to come. <laughs> like, uh, you know, basically, a retirement home for actors that aren't getting as much work elsewhere. Third best exotic marigold hotel, not dead yet. Uh, you know, I was not a giant fan of the best exotic marigold hotel. I know audiences really loved it. Because you're not 70. Well, my mom loved it. Of course, she's almost 70. Yeah. Uh, and she loved this one, too. And I was like, you know, I'm going to ask for this if for no other reason so I can just send it to my mom afterwards. As a <laughs> right? And I admit I actually like this one better than the first one. And So it's a- this is actually the best, best exotic Marigold Hotel. I mean, that being said... Still here, I get so annoyed uh, with Deb Patel. He was the part that annoyed me the most in the first one, and he's the by far the most annoying thing here, playing the uh, co-owner of the hotel in question with Maggie Smith's character. And he's just, like, he's giving a good performance. It's nothing wrong with his performance. He's very, he's just hyperactive as hell. He can be very funny. But in it, he's about to get married to his uh, fiance, who's just a knockout and her like brother's best friend shows up to help with the wedding. Who's a, I guess he's like, has like lots of dance experience. So he's there to help teach them how to do the incredibly elaborate choreographed dance that apparently Indians do at their weddings. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this, I'm like, I'm not letting my girlfriend see this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've, seen, I've seen you clawed up around the dance floor, sir. Cause I'm just going to stand in front of a justice of the peace, you know? <laughs> I don't need one million candles and 3,000 choreographed steps. I got married by an Elvis, and I don't think I need this nonsense. It seems seems like a lot of work. Uh, uh, But he just immediately flies into total unreasonable jealousy about absolutely every little thing. And you're like, oh, for Christ's sake, shut up and act like a real person. (laughs) Like, I understand jealousy. I don't understand throwing your life into a series of three's company misunderstandings in order to do it. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, here we've got the, a lot of the characters in the previous film. Judy Dench is still there along with Bill Nighy, who clearly want to be with each other, but Bill Nighy is too shy to make a move. And she is too. Undecided, is he gear? undecided about what she wants to do with the rest of her life to, to finish up, uh, to, to, to finish up herself. Of course, Maggie Smith is still there as well. Uh, some of the other characters as well from the previous one, but now we've got this new character, Richard Gere, showing up as Guy Chambers, who Deb Patel is completely convinced is a guy that's been sent by this big hotel chain who they want to sponsor, to be partners with in buying a second hotel. He's there to check, the, check him out. No one believes this, including the audience, but he's convinced and he's just throwing other customers, you know, out the door, basically, and ignoring everybody in his own upcoming wedding in order to pander to this guy who's like, I'm just here to write a book. Uh, 
And there's some funny stuff in here. Richard Gere is looks bored, like really bored, and kind of embarrassed to be in this movie. Like, what happened? I was in. Wasn't, I was like a. I was like in Chicago not that long ago. Wasn't, I, I'm sorry. The best thing. The best. The, the last really good thing he did that I actually enjoyed and would watch again was probably Mothman Chronicles. He his face I seems to have seems to have finally just eaten his eyes. It does. Yes. He is a Muppet now. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I mean, this is cute. There's some adorable stuff in it. It's not, like, to the point of being irritating when it is being irritating, of of being, you know, offensive or anger-inducing. And there's some real pretty stuff. It's all in India. All these characters living in this hotel is, you know, I mean, there's almost no plot. There's little tiny subplots going on, but no real big overarching plot, except is he going to be able to buy the new hotel? Is he not going to be able to buy the new hotel? You'll be hard pressed to care, but there are some beautifully filmed sequences in here. Like I said, the wedding is pretty gorgeous to, to look at. I would love to have been at this wedding. <laughs> it's like, now that's a wedding I would rent a tux for. <laughs> It looks like a lot of fun. So basically, this is just eye candy for octogenarians. It is. That's exactly yeah. what it is. A bunch of harmless little stories that aren't going to offend anybody uh, with some good performances from a great cast who are clearly enjoying themselves, except Richard Gere, <laughs> and are, are have a lot of great chemistry together. So there are pluses here, but let's face it. If you're listening to this podcast, if you know what a podcast is, <laughs> this is probably not the movie for you. What's a potable cast? <laughs> Next up is Justice League Gods and Monsters. This is the latest film in the DC animated universe original movies. Uh, that- a- 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 Justice League Gods and Monsters, a.k.a. Bruce Timms Elseworlds. Yeah, it, well, that's exactly what it is. I mean, even to the point that one of the extra features on here, like, they always do an extra feature that's sort of like the history of, you know, whatever new thing is being introduced in this. Like, is there the main villain is this? Let's look at, spend 20 minutes looking at the history of that character. Well, here, one of the two features like that is the history of Elseworlds, because this is the first, like, if you don't count the, the two Dark Knight uh, animated films, the first proper Elseworlds. DC originally animated film. And Bruce Tim clearly wants to start a new franchise out of this particular world he's created. Uh, and I'm not totally against that. This is an interesting Elseworld where General Zod busted into Krypton uh, and uh, Superman's parents' chambers right before they were about to instead of taking a baby and putting it in the pod, injecting their DNA so the pod can create the baby for them in an artificial womb uh, before the dad can put his DNA in. So uh, Zod's like, fuck that, it's going to be my kid. And puts <laughs> his in there. So you know the kid's not going to be as nice as Clark Kent. He's got a spectacular beard, though. Uh, indeed. Mm. Comes down to Earth and is found by a, a Mexican couple, a poor Mexican couple who raises them, flash to years and years later, and it's Superman, who is now this guy, who's still, I mean, he's not a villain, he's just a lot harder-edged and is not afraid to kill people, you know, a bit of a... Quite quite gruesomely in the opening sequence. A bit of like, a fascist. Oh, let's drop a, let's drop a, a 50-ton steel door on three guys. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, but they're doing it to, like, known terrorists who are about to blow stuff up. It's like, okay, this is not the Superman we know. This is the Superman probably more like a Superman that would be in our world. <laughs> uh, then Batman, who is actually here instead of Bruce Wayne, he's Kirk Langstrom, who, if you remember from the original comic books, it was the Man-Bat. Man-Bat. Uh, and here he accidentally 
turned himself into sort of a half vampire. Uh, he's got like you know a lot of the advantages, the super strength and what have you. But he also has to drink blood. Mobius a lot. living vampire. Yeah, he's pretty much Mobius <laughs> living vampire if he didn't go like into villain territory the way Mobius did in the books or so on. Uh, and then you've got Wonder Woman, who is actually one of the new gods, Jack Kirby's new gods, Becca, the wife of Orion, except in this alternate version of things, the new gods basically all killed each other and she retreated to Earth uh, and has become Wonder Woman. And they're all... Um, they're all pretty much fascists, but they work for the government, yeah. ultimately. They have their own thing. They have a Justice League building. Ultimately, they don't answer to them, but they have a partnership with the government who are always – who realize, what if these guys ever decide they don't need us anymore? Yeah. <laughs> and are kind of paranoid about that. And in fact, working on something to try – like a backup plan in case that ever happens. Who's surprised when the president of the United States is Amanda Waller? Yeah. <laughs> uh and I thought this was like, there's a lot of a lot of the fun of this is saying, oh, what is this alternate uh, world's people doing? You know, like Victor Freeze or Ray Palmer or Victor Stone or uh, I, Lex Luthor, Will Magnus, people like that popping up in very different like arcs you, you've of their kind lives. Kind of got to know a lot of more uh, relatively more obscure. DC continuity stuff. You have to know the Metal Man. You have to know. Well, it, you don't have to, but a lot I, of the I, entertainment I think, yeah. value. You have to know. A, you have to know a chunk of the New Gods continuity, which yeah. is something. Uh, there is, in fact, a, one of my favorite things was actually a visual joke um, involving Lex Luthor and New Gods continuity. That you kind of look at it and go, "Ah, oh, that's terribly clever." But if you don't know the New Gods, then you kind of go, you know, I was, I don't, I don't well, once again, though, I don't think there's anything that will make you go, right. I don't understand what's happening, no. but you will miss, but you will miss I think you, all you, the wink-wink, nod-nod, all the fun. Oh, all. look who it is! Yeah. Like, I love the Metal Men, so I was like, oh, it's the Metal Men! I love yeah. the Metal Men! <laughs> right off the bat, they, like, they show you early on, one of them is like, oh, that's going to turn into something, because yep. that's one of the Metal Men! Uh, and here, there's a group of these crazy robots that are boom tubing in killing a group of scientists several of which were recognizable characters in the the primary universe and then zipping out but doing it in a way that it makes it look like superman batman and wonder woman did the crimes and so the government's which, like i, was, I okay, kind of wish they'd left that a little bit less obvious for the um the audience because they immediately go no it's these robots it's not really them it's well, like it'd be nice couldn't that be nicer like you like you had the risk of, of knowing that they're actually the bad guys or thought yeah or and even thought that maybe what if it's one of them yeah who is actually like the other two don't know and one of them is doing it you know that would have it been kind a little of more interesting. the narrative a little bit it did I, I, and I, I thought and i think another criticism is i don't think the animation here is dc's best work no. i think i don't think it's terrible it's serviceable but it's certainly nothing very impressive i mean i like that bruce tim was prepared to go somewhere a little bit darker with his oh, with his yeah. work a lot darker but i, I don't know it, it it lacks i think the the wit um, and narrative adeptness and deftness that I think his best work has. Agreed. Uh, I mean, I think if you if you like these, you know what DC's animated line has been doing. Yeah, this is going to be a solid addition. I don't think this is going to be the entry point for anybody to it. No, definitely not. This is, uh, you know, it's an Elseworlds in every sense, and that like most Elseworlds, it's an amusing like read or slash watch, but. 
it's nothing that's probably going to stick with you for very long afterwards. I mean, there's, there are some really great Elseworlds, like Kingdom Come, for instance, which is amazing. Uh, or Gotham uh, by Gaslight. Gotham by Gaslight, which is uh, great. So great. But most of them are not all that memorable. This well, is and, one of those. Plus, I always, I always felt that the big difference between what DC did with Elseworlds and what Marvel did with What If. Um, Mar- the, the, the core difference is that Elseworlds will tend to be, oh yeah, and they kind of start off from a bad, weird, parallel place, but they end up basically like the characters you know. Whereas with What If, Marvel goes, no, they all die at the end. Yeah, oh my like, god. Yeah. The universe is destroyed like, because my, the thing didn't marry Alicia Masters. One, <laughs> one of my favorite ones from the mid 90s runs of What If, and I, I really wish they'd republished this one, it, it's the point where the X Men have taken Sabretooth in. Oh, right. And um, uh, he gets out and just kills everybody. Yeah, and it's him. It's the it's after all that's happened, and him pursuing Kitty Pride through the mansion, and finally she locks him in the danger room and turns all the safeties off, and it's just the danger room constantly killing him forever and ever and ever and ever. Awesome. And it's like, holy shit, that's dark, and you never kind of get that with the, with with Elseworlds, and you're definitely not going to get that with um, a an Elseworlds home release. The other thing is they start from such a dark place, but ultimately are more like, how do they get more like the characters in our universe? And this is definitely one of those where it's like moving, you know, starting from such a dark place, moving towards maybe we should be nicer people. And that's fine, whatever. It just doesn't... It's missing a certain level of bite, to be sure. And I also like some of the best Elseworlds comics have, like... This is sort of an arbitrary series of changes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and not a, as big a, or interesting as a backstory as, say, uh, Flashpoint, which was a much more interesting. The Flash enters an alternate universe where uh, there's a lot of darker characters. You're like, there was so much more shit going on. And he's like, where's Aquaman and Green Lantern and all that stuff here? Well, they're not involved in this. This is really... Bruce Tim saying, I really want to bring back all these other tiny little characters that nobody thinks about anymore, you know. Uh, and that's fine. It's Bruce Tim going, I'm Grant Morrison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, of course, there's some pretty interesting extra features on here. Like I said, there's about a 20-minute thing about, like, the history of Elseworlds. Uh, there's a thing called Calculated Risk, the making of gods and monsters, uh, where Bruce Tim says, uh, we're taking a chance with this one. Well, let's face it, not that big of a chance. Uh, the highlight here is 22 minutes on, the, it says, the new god but really it's a biography of Jack Kirby, which is worth having, of course, in and of itself. You know, Kirby being one of the, the true geniuses of the early days of comics. And then... A, a, <laughs> do, do, uh, I haven't seen that, so do they admit that the only reason he did the New God stuff was because he got he, he walked away from Marvel and, and still had a lot of Asgard stuff to not do? Not in so many words. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, there's extra episodes of, uh, of television shows with vague relations, Phantoms from Legion of Superheroes and Brave New Metropolis from Superman the Animated series and then a preview of the next one batman bad blood which has uh you know i didn't read the whole run of batman when batman was dead but it seems like this takes place during it even though this is supposedly a completely original story it's not based on any existing comics thing and batman's not is isn't in it except in flashbacks it's what happens to the bat family when batman disappears or dies how do they reorganize what happens with Robin, who was, had become Nightwing, deciding, okay, I guess i got to be Batman. I don't really want to be, but I have to be. And it's uh, the series' first introduction of Batwoman, too. And yeah. the, the new Batwoman uh, with, uh, uh, God, that 
I forget the name of the artist who's just doing such an amazing job on her comic book. Oh, blah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's just like, wow, jaw-dropping artwork on Batwoman. Anyway, I, I think this is well worth watching for big fans, not an introduction film. In fact, uh, well, it, my main takeaway from uh, watching this entire disc was I, I'm far more interested in seeing uh, Bat- Batman Bad Blood yeah. than I was in watching this. This, I think me too. this really felt like it spoke to a very limited subset of, of DC fans. In fact, in some ways, it was the fans that DC spent years trying to get away from uh, when it was trying to revamp and become more newer and cutting edge and started reprinting all the uh, the New God stuff in these really beautiful collected editions that they knew that, you know, 50-year-olds with a lot of spare disposable cash were going to buy. And it was like, <laughs> we ain't, we're not going to produce any new comics for you because we're far more interested in Vertigo. Uh, but you, you can have nice reprints of Jack Kirby stuff. True. Uh, our last film of the day is also our giveaway. And that is Ex Machina. Yes, that's right. We're giving you a Blu-ray of Ex Machina, one of uh, this year's most talked about films, even though we saw it last year. Huh? <laughs> uh, 2015 sci-fi film starring Donald Gleason, Elisa Vikander, and Oscar Isaac. Uh, the idea being here is that Caleb, played by Donald Gleason, is a programmer working for a imaginary company called Blue Book, which is basically this world's version of Google. Uh, and he wins some kind of contest. It's not—I was never quite clear how he was chosen, but he is chosen to have a special one-person trip out to the middle of nowhere with the giant ranch, computer ranch, of uh, the company's really eccentric CEO, Nathan, played by Isaac, uh, uh, Oscar Isaac. Uh, Oscar, I'm getting every, th- every role there is, Isaac. Yeah, right. <laughs> who has uh, recently been cast, cast as um, Ivan Ooze in um, uh, the next X-Men movie. Well, he's Apocalypse. I no, no, you look at the pictures. It's fucking Ivanus. Ivanus. I don't know who Ivanus is. Uh, from um, Power Rangers. Everybody's noted uh, that in fact yeah. the character looks like the main bad guy. It looks more like the main bad guy from Power Rangers than he does like Apocalypse. I guess it's probably good. I never watched Power Rangers because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, if you, you never got so. up at nine o'clock on a Saturday. But, well, uh, no, I was watching. I was probably sleeping off a hangover. Is what I was doing <laughs> when Power Rangers was on. But uh, so he goes there, and uh, Nathan is like. You know, welcoming, but at the same time, obviously a little standoffish too. Like, hey, I'm a busy guy. Uh, feel free to walk around the crazy sci-fi facility here, but except for the doors that won't open for you, don't mess with that stuff. Uh, but the reason he wants to bring him out here is because he has developed a humanoid robot with what he suspects is real artificial intelligence. He is named Ava, played by Alicia Vikander, who, except for her hands and her face. Uh, is, you know, clearly a robot where you can see all the insides running and everything, but a completely human hands and face. And uh, Nathan says that, you know, the Turing test, which is the famous, you know, the test uh, named after the the first designer of the first computer, Alan Turing, uh, is supposed to detect whether or not a computer has true AI or not. Uh, And he says that it's not a fair... What? Go ahead. Well, this was part of, you know, a lot of people have loved this. I had some issues with it, not least that, you know, kind of didn't find many of the characters engaging. Um, but they, this, this isn't the Turing test. Because the whole point of a Turing test is that um, you have a person who is communicating with something that they don't know whether 
it's a human or a computer. Well, that's why he and, says it's not a fair test, though. Yeah, but it's like it, the, the instant he says it's the Turing test, the, you know, Donald Gleason's character would have gone, oh, no, no, it's not. It's not the Turing test. It's something else. So it's kind of like silly to call it the Turing test. But that, does, kind of, kind that, that did happen in the movie, though. Yeah, but it, it doesn't happen initially. It takes a while for that. It kind of bugged me for a little bit. I was oh. like, well, he would have immediately gone, not the Turing test, boss. Well, anyway, um. he gets uh, Caleb. He wants Caleb to come in to judge for himself whether he can relate to Ava on a human level despite knowing that she's an AI. Like, how convincing is it to him that she actually is a true artificial intelligence or just a simulation of one? Or is he merely being fooled by the fact that she has robot boobs? She, you know, this is a robot I would have no compunctions about having sex with. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, you said that the one about the, the, the robot in the ice castle in um, the original Logan's run. I would have no problem having sex with that robot either. You know yeah. what? I would just have no problem having sex with robots. I can't wait for our robot sex gods to come and be our new overlords. I can't wait. I hope to be the person to do this. Sorry, human race. I'm building Skynet right now there. I said it. Fuck. I can't believe I said that. For you, loud. the black hole is its own porn spoof, isn't it? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> uh... And most of this is really the conversations between Caleb and Ava as, you know, Caleb is actually starting to feel real connection to her. And Ava clearly has her own agenda going on here. (laughs) And the question of the movie is more or less like, what is this agenda? And is she justified in having it or not? Is she truly intelligent? And if she is, what's the ethics of this scenario? Yeah, And I personally found this absolutely fascinating. I was stuck with this from beginning to end, completely into it. It is emotionally cold a bit. I will hand you that, certainly. But it, I like that it's one of very few sci-fi films that have come out in the past several years that is genuinely hard sci-fi. Oh, this is, this is you know, the, and the most admirable thing about it is this is a hard SF movie. It makes no bones about it. It's extremely proud of that fact. It wears it's on it. It wears it on its sleeve. Oh yeah. Uh, I just I, I found it intellectually engaging. I didn't find it narratively engaging. Was my problem. Um, and you know, the, uh, a lot of the people involved with it uh, are not people that I'm huge. You're not a Dom Gleason fan, as you've already established to me. Yeah. Uh, is, come on. He's not, one of the, not a big he's, fan of Alex Garland. He's one of the Weasleys. Come on. Not, not a big fan of Alex Garland either. Uh, 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 the uh, director? Yeah. I, I find Garland very, un, very kind of yeah, unengaging. Uh, um, who, who did, who, I guess this is his first film as a director, but he previously was a screenwriter of 28 Days Later, Sunshine, uh, 28... Well, no, he didn't write that one. Uh, Never Let Me Go, Dread. I've liked all his movies. <laughs> I, 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 I like Never Let Me Go a lot. I think that comes down to the performances. I like Dread a lot. Uh, I don't know. I just... I, he always feels to me like uh, somebody who's almost dabbling in the genre than really necessarily absolutely loves it or mm. is immersed in it. I always feel like he's making a commentary on it and I'm, I'm not always... You know, you know, I was a big fan of that. Oh, yeah, I, I can. You know, a lot of, of this, I think people are uh, people are really going to enjoy. Uh, I'm really get a lot from. I just it well, it didn't ring. It didn't ring my bells. Okay. You know, I, but like I'm, I, I like both versions of Solaris, and I'm, I'm the weird person when it comes to that kind of thing. I can't <laughs> go with you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I have to say this at least once every episode, but you're so wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll let time and history decide that. Yeah, we will. <laughs> they will agree with me. I don't, You're so wrong. I don't think I am. Anyway, should we ask a question? We should ask a question. We probably should. And that question is related to how you can win this Blu-ray copy of Ex Machina. It is Machina, by the way, not Machina. Yep. If people are talking to you, make sure don't sound like a dummy. Ex Machina, which I'm sure I have friends, other friends who are critics who insist on saying it wrong, and it drives me crazy every single time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> probably type it wrong as well. Uh, okay, so uh, we need you to follow us uh, at One of Us Net on Twitter. Yes. Uh, and then using the hashtags uh, Ex Machina giveaway. Uh, you have to tell us. Hmm. Hmm. Let me think. What robot in in uh, entertainment would you most like to have sex with, and why? Yeah, and it's the why I think that is going to tell us a frightening amount about our listenership. Yep, and we promise not to tell your moms. It's okay. Or, or retweet it to her. Yeah, or or DM it. Get you in a fight with Nicki Minaj or Taylor Swift. Yeah, that won't happen. No. Don't worry. We, we vaguely promised that. <laughs> we okay. We don't promise so much as like it probably won't happen. We promise you nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so thank you so much. We'll pick the winner of that. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening. Once again, click on those Amazon links. Uh, click on that audible.com link and think about joining them because there's so much great stuff on there. And uh, uh, become a subscriber because tons of new stuff coming out as well as two weekly shows that are already on there. The Breakfast Pub with me and Brian Salisbury that talks about all the latest movie and television entertainment news coming out. And, of course, the, the bi-weekly The Original Gentleman with Martin, myself, Bo, and whoever else else we get any given week mm-hmm. and more new shows to come on there as well as all those commentaries thank you for listening uh anything to say before we finish up here richard um i i uh, other than you're wrong about lots of things yeah well yeah, you, you you roll with those punches don't you <laughs> uh no I, th- I think um merely to say you know, no release is too big no release is too small from criterion to catastrophe we do indeed review them all damn it that's my line ah.